Hello and welcome to Immigrantly. I am your host Sadia Khan. Today we have another guest for our season 14 which is about issues that unite or divide us. Our guest is Josefa Velasquez, a senior reporter for The City, a digital publication focused on the New York area. As the state capital reporter, her focus has always included the governor and legislature, money and politics and grassroots movements. Josefa herself has been featured in The Guardian, The New York Times, Business Insider, New York Magazine and Politico, to name a few. Today we are bringing her on to this season of Immigrantly because of a recent article she co-wrote with fellow city reporter Clifford Michel titled NYC to pick up two state senates under Albany redistricting plan. The report dives into redistricting efforts in Brooklyn and Queens that will change the district's constituent makeup. 10 years ago, legislatures in Albany divided district lines in ways that weakened the homogeneous communities that lived there. Sunset Park in the Brooklyn borough, for example, home to a large Asian community, was split into three separate districts. Though that may not sound alarming initially we have Josefa on today to explain redistricting the basics of it and why we should care and i am so excited because i have very limited knowledge around this topic and i am glad that we will be learning about redistricting together so let's get started Josefa, thank you so much for coming on Immigrant Tea. I am so excited because today we are going to talk about something that I have very limited knowledge of, which is redistricting. And we hear these terms, right? Mm-hmm. Redistricting, gerrymandering, voter suppression. Unfortunately, a lot of people who are using these terms don't really know what they mean, yeah. and I'm so glad that you're here to help us understand those terms. So, we'll start with the basics right if you could define redistricting for us in very simple terms yeah so redistricting is this thing that happens after the census so every 10 years people in america are counted to make sure that we know who lives where and what are their backgrounds so following the census we know how many people live in a community and then what happens is lines get drawn all around different states different uh, you know towns, neighborhoods to decide who represents this area and what does that boundary look like. So redistricting is just the mechanism for drawing those lines. And what is the goal? What are we trying to achieve through redistricting? The ideal goal is to make sure that people who live in an area are represented in Congress, in the state house, in their, you know, city council. It's all to make sure that the people who live somewhere have voice in government what ends up happening is not that it becomes sort of a game of how do we make the weirdest lines possible to benefit one party or another or sometimes when it's the same party like certain individuals or another but the ideal goal and the aspiration is make sure that people's voices are heard and that they have adequate representation in government but that's not happening as you said and when it doesn't happen do we call it gerrymandering yes so gerrymandering is just a wonky term for <laughs> drawing the most insane lines you could possibly imagine 
My favorite sort of way to explain this is that in New York, specifically in Queens, there is a state Senate seat that only connects when it's low tide. What does that mean? So when the water is low, that's because the lines have to be what's called continuous. So they have to all be one big shape that's contained within itself. You can't like break it up. So the only time it ever... (laughs) <laughs> you know, it's continuous is when it's, the water's low. Oh, um, my gosh. But, yeah, I mean, if you ever find yourself bored, just Google gerrymandered lines and you'll see the craziest shapes known to mankind because people try to sneak certain groups in there or exclude certain groups um, to make sure that those voices aren't heard or eliminated from you know, their district. When I think about gerrymandering, I'll be honest, I think about Republicans and I think about red states because it's happening a lot in red states, right? Give us an overview of what's happening with redistricting in New York, especially Queens and Brooklyn. You wrote an article on it. So I'm curious to know what's happening, what has happened. Right. So to talk about where we are, we have to go a little bit to the past. Mm -hmm. So about 10 plus years ago, Republicans controlled the New York State Senate, which a lot of people didn't know about. And it's sort of shocking because New York is very blue. And so they came up with an agreement to create a redistricting process that basically made it so there was an independent commission, a group of people that were appointed by, you know, Democrats, Republicans, and then they would come up with the line. So they weren't completely gerrymandered. They weren't rigged to benefit one party. Because the previous lines were completely rigged to help the Republicans in control. So this time we have an independent commission that redrew the lines. Sort of. Sort of, right? (laughs) So there was a poison pill in the thing that said if the commission cannot come up with an agreement, then it gets kicked over to the state legislature. The commission was... Unable to? (laughs) Unable to do it because they were bipartisan, but they were split evenly down the middle. So they were never able to come up with a plan. So the Democrats had their lines. The Republicans had their lines. And so what ended up happening was that the Democrats now have a supermajority in New York, which back 10 years ago, no one would have thought that could have happened. And so they put forward their own set of lines. Now these Democrats who have for years and years and years decried, you know, Republicans and how they're using these lines to their advantage and exiling communities of color or big urban areas. They're doing the same exact thing that Republicans did. How do we make sure that the process itself is impartial? It seems to me that it could never be impartial, right? Is there a solution? How does redistricting become more representative of its constituents without creating the controversy that it normally does. Right. So, you know, what's happening now and what we're going to see play out over the next couple of days is when this happens, there's always lawsuits. There's always lawsuits. And so tomorrow, actually, a judge is supposed to rule on the New York lines. And what theoretically could happen is that they're going to kick it over to some professor somewhere who ends up using a computer software program to basically come up with the lines in a way that is impartial to any one party. But there's a lot of things you have to consider when it comes to redistricting. Like you have to have roughly the same amount of people in each area, in each district. You can't break up communities of interest. So whether that is certain ethnic communities, demographics, religious groups, 
And you really have to take all that into consideration because it's illegal, federally illegal, to break those groups up. So what's ending up happening now is in New York, at least, there will be an additional state Senate seat in or two additional state Senate seats in Mm. New York City, basically guaranteeing that, for the most part, Democrats are going to be in control for the next generation, essentially. But we are also losing one state seat, right? We're losing a congressional seat. Oh, yeah. So, you know, the the funny thing that Democrats are trying to do now in New York is saying we're at a moment in time in Congress where it's really close between Democrats and Republicans. Uh. Texas, the Republicans in Texas are going to gerrymander the crap out of their state and they're (laughs) going to get more congressional representation. So we have to do the same in New York to balance that instead of it being let's play by the rules and everyone does the thing. But here's my question to you then. Do you think it's okay for Democrats to not play by the rules because Republicans are not doing it either? You know, it's hard for me to say, but Democrats have always been the sort of party of morality. But that has really disadvantaged us, right? I mean, I think so. But if you're going to say for decades, Republicans are wrong, they've been doing this, and then when you suddenly gain power and you do the same exact thing, that's a little bit hypocritical. Yeah, but the saving grace is we are doing it in New York, right? Which is a deep blue state, so it won't really matter as much, or would it? So it would. So we think of New York as a really deep blue state right. because you know New York City has eight million plus people, but this is a state of nineteen million people. If ah. you go further upstate, it's like you're in the South. Like there are more cows than people in some areas. Even on Long Island, the further east you go on Long Island, the more Republican it becomes. And now, like, that was an area that was pretty Democratic, and now it's becoming a little bit more purple. And there's these pockets that were sort of emboldened by Donald Trump to come out and switch party allegiances. So even though New York is considered deeply blue, it's just major cities in New York that are considered Mm. deeply blue because the areas around it, like— when people think of New York, they think of New York City. Mm. They're not thinking of the state itself, The state itself, which is very rural. Huh. You know, if anyone's ever traveled across New York State. I you know, try not to. <laughs> I mean, I lived in Albany for like years and years and years. So I had to, tra- and for work, I've had to travel all around. Huh. And it was one of those things where I'm like, am I still in New York? Am I going to like accidentally cross the border into like Canada or something? Because it's very possible. Like once you get that high in the state. It's interesting you say that because sometimes even in the town that I live in, I I question whether that's New York or not. So there is this myth around New York and what New York values are and what we believe in, which may not be exactly what we perceive it to be. Right. And even a place like New York City Hmm. that's supposed to be really progressive, you know, back in November, Republicans made like shocking gains in the city council. You know, there's areas in southern Brooklyn that are pretty conservative. There's places in Queens that are still pretty conservative. So I think that took a lot of people by surprise because it was the thing that no one saw coming, which was a Republican resurgence. Josefa, why do you think that was happening or that is happening? I think a lot of it has to do with the response to the pandemic, people being unsatisfied with how things are right now. I mean, Going into 2020, a lot of promises were made by Democrats about student loans and coming up with opportunities for people, and those haven't really materialized. And instead, we've been now in a pandemic for 
what feels like forever. Yeah. And things haven't necessarily gotten better. So I think it was just a disappointment in the status quo. And I think Donald Trump really just opened up something in people that made it like okay to say out loud the things that you were thinking. And I think on both sides of the aisle, his presidency really engaged people in government and politics, whether you were a Democrat trying to fight against what he stands for right. or a Republican who was emboldened by it. Talking about student loans, please, can we cancel them already? I have a student loan and I am just waiting for a day when student loans will be canceled. I want to pivot a little and ask you about your writing process because you share so many interesting stories and videos and we could have another episode with you on what's happening with unionization mm -hmm. and Amazon workers. But how do you establish connection of trust and transparency with folks that you interact with? Yeah, so for the last 10 years, I've been a political reporter. My job has been sort of done backwards, where most reporters go through, you start working a local paper and then work your way up to politics. Mine was the opposite. Huh. So I can talk to people in power and have no issue with it. I don't even think twice about it. Talking to normal people gives me such severe anxiety because these people aren't like trained. Right. They don't know what something that's on the record, off the record, like the consequences of talking to someone like me. I've been able to make a lot of inroads with immigrant communities because I'm an immigrant. You know, I understand what it's like to be undocumented mm. or what it is to grow up poor and having to watch your parents struggle and have to be exceptional when everyone else has to be average or ordinary. Mm. Absolutely. Um, but, you know, the thing for me that has really helped is laying out the process for people. You know, there's so much distrust in media I have to explain to people like, all right, so this is a story I'm working on. Hmm. Here's what it means to be off the record. You know, this is just for my information only. This is background, yeah. which means, you know, you won't be quoted directly, but right. I'll reference it. Here's what it means to be on the record. Here is the pros and cons of talking to someone like me and having your story out there and having your name out there. So I think it's building that trust, holding someone's hand and walking them through that process and telling them, you know, yes, this benefits me as a journalist, but it could also benefit you. Mm. And same thing with like, it could also hurt, you know, if you're right. undocumented or something like that. Laying it all out for people, I think, has helped me make connections that I think some of my colleagues struggle with because they don't understand that. So, Josefa, is there a particular topic or an issue which was really challenging to cover? Yeah, I mean, I think for me personally, during the pandemic, covering these incredibly long food lines and pantry lines was one of those moments that like really sort of broke me because how do we live in this country right. that is so, so, so wealthy, has so and many, so much poverty so still. And there's so much poverty. There's, I remember just being at a food pantry line that went blocks and blocks and blocks. I think it was something like 10 blocks of people with their kids in the middle of the summer waiting for food. And that was really difficult because not only is this a vulnerable moment for them, it is incredibly uncomfortable for me as a human being to walk up to someone and say like, hey, I'm a reporter. Do you want right. to talk to me? Because there's all this stigma attached to, you know, food access mm. and poverty and trying to lay it out that like, I'm here because food access is still a problem. And this was a 
bright spot that like you're able to access it. But you know, there comes that moment like they run out of food. It's so unfortunate that in a country like U.S., we see a lot of stigma attached to poverty. So right? much. The entire idea of the American dream, which to me is a myth now. Yeah. When when I was in Pakistan, I thought it existed, but it doesn't exist for everyone. Um, is basically saying that you just if you worked hard, everything will be okay, which is not true. Right. Right. And that goes back to if somebody is poor, then it's probably because of who they are and right. not because of their circumstances. Yeah. Right? Um, which is so, so, so unfortunate. Now, I want to circle back to redistricting. Since we are here talking about this on immigrantly, how would we not talk about redistricting and not address how it impacts immigrant communities? Can you tell me how people who are not U.S. citizens, I mean, there are a lot of immigrants who are U.S. citizens, but then there are others who are not, or not even permanent residents. How does redistricting impact them specifically? Right. So it doesn't matter whether you're documented or not. You're still counted in your census, regardless of your immigration status. So what ends up happening is that Let's say a place like Queens, like um, you know Corona, which is a huge has a huge immigrant population. All of those people still count towards the ultimate number of people that are supposed to be in a district, whether they vote or not. Whether they vote or not, yeah. But the interesting thing that's going to start happening is that in New York City, people who are green card holders, I think people who also have DACA and even TPS, are going to be eligible to vote in their local elections. So that changes the dynamic completely for people because the city council has to get redistricted, too. So now you're going to see your local council member here in New York City having to make concessions or even be responsible for this immigrant community that hasn't really had a voice before. You know, whether it's the Colombians, the Latino community, people from the Middle East, people from Asia, you know, Koreans. It's all like all of their votes are going to matter now, where mm. before it was just not the case. Now they're going to have the ability to be able to vote. And so you're going to see a lot more, hopefully, representation in local government, at least at that level. And how do you think that will change the way elections are carried out and how candidates approach their candidacy through election process. Yeah. I mean, I think now you need to be more dynamic. It's not enough for you to go and give out flyers at the train station. You have to go to like all these different businesses, all these different communities, and make sure that you have people on your team that understands the nuances of the culture, right? Like I always sort of rip my hair out every time I hear someone being like, well, Latinos are all Democrats. And I'm like, (laughs) no, they're not. They're really not. So it's understanding like the differences in cultures and the differences in communities that's going to be really difficult for elected officials to navigate through. I think a lot of places in New York, you know, people have been elected into that office for decades to the point where it's like, you know, there's I'm not going to say who it is, but this individual who is an older white woman who represents a majority Asian district. And we're talking Ah. like she has had to learn how to relate to that community and celebrate their holidays and understand their culture because she needs she wants to stay in office. Right. Right. But the other side of it is having someone who looks like you, who understands your community in a position of power to advocate for the needs of your community. That validates your existence. right? It does make it a lot more relatable in many ways. 
Josefa, I just want to expand this conversation a little, and I want to talk about your article. You mentioned that the new proposal would divide the South Asian and the Indo-Caribbean communities. What struck me was that there is already a dialogue between who's considered Asian, and many South Asian communities are overlooked in the process. Yeah. So is it possible that redistricting will push that divide further and prolong the conversation around who constitutes this particular group? Totally. I mean, the one thing that has sort of shocked me through covering New York over the last decade is how little diversity there is in the state legislature. So Mm. I think in 2018, maybe 2020 was the first time we had a South Asian state lawmaker Right. And I was just like, how is that possible? To your point, just because a community could be considered, quote unquote, minority, even though there might be a majority in their area, we're not talking about people who have the same cultural background. Right. You can talk about an immigrant community, but there's, you know, four, five, six different countries that come from that. So that's one of those things that people have to consider when and the judges are starting to consider now when it comes to redistricting, like what communities are we breaking up and who are we giving a voice to? One of the prime examples in New York in back in 2010, 2012, around that time, was how they made a whole state Senate seat to encompass the Orthodox Jewish community in Brooklyn. Hmm. Um, because Brooklyn has a pretty vibrant Orthodox community. Right. So they made a whole Senate seat that captured all of these different neighborhoods where that group is centralized. And now it's, okay, well, how do you, can you do that in, you know, places like- Other communities. Yeah, in other communities. And at what point does it become gerrymandering? And at what point it becomes, you know, abiding by the law and not breaking up these communities of interest? Right. But in terms of different communities, when we look at the Asian community, and I keep going back to that because there are a lot of myths around that, right? So when we think about, say- Chinese voters in Sunset Park, Brooklyn, most of them voted Republican, Mm. right? And I know your article talks about how redistricting, as it's done right now, will benefit Democrats because it's mostly Asian, mostly Latino groups. But within those groups, as you said, people vote differently. These are not monolith groups, something that people tend to overlook. So who is it really going to favor in the long term? I mean, I think in the long term, it always ends up favoring the same people it has favored historically, right? Like Mm. white, you know, cisgendered, (laughs) probably men. Um, But at the same time, like, maybe I'm just being cynical and through this process, we will get more representation in government or different communities will get more representation in government. But... It's hard to take off that skeptic hat when we've seen this play out so many times before. I'm more hopeful that like maybe it starts at like a very, very local level with the city council in New York is a really diverse group. I think the majority of people in the city council are women now, which Mm. is wild. And there's a huge contingency of Asian members, you know, whether they're from Korea or China, India, Pakistan. It's a much more diverse group than it's ever been before. So maybe that'll start trickling up into like the state level. And then above that, it's Congress. Because at the end of the day, New York's congressional delegation, when you look above Westchester, it's not anything all that diverse. And when you look at like the U.S. senators for New York, like they're both white. The majority leader is older 
and Kristen Gillibrand <laughs> is, you know, I think in her 50s, but they're both white people. Now, when you talk about representation, I'm curious to know what would matter more, representation in terms of who votes or representation in terms of the elected officials? When we think about diversity in mm-hmm. representation, I think the voters. I'm mm. that's the problem with you know voting in New York or voting in America is that very few people actually vote even if they're eligible. Why do you think that is the case? I think people are just like not interested in their local government. I mean, obviously Donald Trump's election made people get interested, but now he's not in office. There's not like this villain that everyone's trying to rally around. And, you know, presidential election years have high turnout. Mm. The non-presidential years, abysmal. Like, I always say, like, if we get to 9% voter turnout in a non-election year, that's great. Mm. That is amazing. We've done our job. But Mm. that's so many people who just cannot or will not go vote because they either don't care, don't think it matters. But there are races that I've covered where it comes down between like 18 votes. Mm. There are some races that it's like, you know, a couple dozen votes makes the difference. So like your vote does matter, but it's also hard to get engaged if you're shut out from your community already. What's the point of going to vote for the school board or for your local council member if they don't listen to you anyway? How do we elevate consciousness of an ordinary voter? And encourage them to yeah. vote. I think that falls on, you know, us in the media to cover things that they care about. I think a lot of times we end up covering things to impress each other and <laughs> other reporters, but people just want like very basic information, you know, yeah. the things that they care about are things that are like the thing that they interact with every day. Like are there potholes on my street? Is my street clean? Right. What are my property taxes like? How is my kid's school working out? You know, what am I paying for? Like all these taxes. And we live in New York, so we're taxed to hell. Oh, my gosh. Tax. Um, yeah. But those are the things that, like, people can see and can are, like, relatable, right? Yeah. Like, oh, this person, this elected official, whatever it is, they paved that road. Yeah. So now I don't have to hop over this pothole. I have a busted tire. It cost me 200 bucks to get it fixed, whatever. You know, I think it's going to communities and asking them, like, What do you want to know? What do you care about? And there are a lot of potholes in New York. Yes, there are. My busted rim can tell you that. Our next partner has a product I use literally every day. I started taking AG1 by Athletic Greens because I wanted better gut health and wanted a supplement that actually tastes great and also wanted to see what the hype was all about. Now, I have been on it for a few weeks and I love it. Fun fact, it doesn't taste like it's super healthy. It has a kind of mild tropical taste and I actually look forward to it each morning. With just one delicious scoop of AG1, you're absorbing 75 high-quality vitamins, minerals, whole food-sourced superfoods, probiotics and adaptogens to help you start your day. Right now, it's time to reclaim your health and arm your immune system with convenient daily nutrition. It's just one scoop in a cup of water every day. That's how I take it. That's it. No need for a million different pills and supplements to look out for your health. 
To make it easy, Athletic Greens is going to give you a free one-year supply of immune-supporting vitamin D and five free travel packs with your first purchase. All you have to do is visit athleticgreens.com forward slash emerging. Again, that is athleticgreens.com forward slash emerging to take ownership over your health and pick up the ultimate daily nutritional insurance. I'm just thinking about my mind, in fact, wandered to Pakistani politics and it comes down to those basic issues, right? Yeah. Nobody is thinking about more like, I guess, high level issues at this point. People are more concerned about what directly impacts them. Right. But sometimes it's important to look beyond that as well, right? Mm -hmm. Uh, Because of the politics and how it impacts different communities, sometimes we are so focused on what impacts us, that we don't think about how our choices will impact our neighbors and our community. We are pretty much siloed in a way, especially Mm -hmm. U.S. being a very individualistic society. We don't think about that. But how do we make that shift and allow people to understand how their vote or their choices impact communities? Broadly. Yeah. So it's funny that you bring up Pakistan. So I'm from Chile and we have a new president who was spurred up from the student revolution a decade ago. Huh. Um, and this was the whole idea of like this country is becoming completely unaffordable. Students are paying so much money to go to school. Sound familiar? Like yeah. <laughs> it's happening here in the U.S. with the whole you know student loan issue. But it's trying to find certain topics and certain subjects within your community that everyone understands. For a certain generation, like student loans, they're saddled yeah. with it, right? Yeah. You know, it's maybe not something that baby boomers can understand, mm-hmm. but for Gen Z, millennials, people are going to be paying for the rest of their lives. So it's what is the issue for your community that is really important to you? You know, for some people, it could be, unfortunately, what we're seeing in New York City is the issue of like shelters, homeless shelters right. in your backyard. So like the community coalesces around no, we don't want this here. And that's what drives people to vote. But it can also be, on the positive side, childcare. You know, childcare is enormously expensive. How do we find someone and get behind this issue of, like, more affordable childcare and getting that to be the forefront of whatever election you're working on? So I think it's trying to, like, figure out what's happening with your neighbors. What are the issues that are important to all of you? Maybe it is the potholes on the road or the (laughs) rising property taxes. That's always a thing that ends up being the driver for voting. Let's talk about gentrification as well. Yeah. And how that will impact redistricting or how redistricting takes that into consideration. What are your thoughts on that? Yeah. So, um, you know, a year ago, maybe 18 months ago, my colleague and I were just looking at census data and looking at where the population has shifted. And what we found was that in places like central Brooklyn, Astoria and Queens, those areas had a huge influx of population. A bunch of people started moving in there. And those people were young, college educated, largely white, but not all the time. But that's a gentrifier, right? It's people who have higher income, who have higher education, and then they demand more of their local officials and their community. And are they a specific ethnicity? 
So in some places, yes. So like in places like Long Island City, you do see a lot of, and this is unfortunately, we can't tell exactly mm-hmm. who it is, but we know there you know, an influx of Asian people okay. of, or of Asian descent. Right. And that's the extent that we know for now because there's going to be more data coming out on it. And those are all a lot of people that work in the tech sector and work in finance who said, you know what, why am I going to pay a Manhattan rent when I could go live in Long Island City right. for still expensive, obviously, but not as but expensive. Not as expensive. Yeah. And there's schools. I can live in a nice high rise. And then there's places, you know, like Astoria, which has been a historically sort of Greek neighborhood. Mm. And I lived there for a bit. And it's becoming like one of the few affordable places that it's still close to Manhattan, where you do see a lot of like college kids or people recently out of college and young people who are, I mean, it was a pandemic and it was like every Sunday was like brunch Sunday fun day. It's so funny you say that because when I think about Astoria, I think about South Asian population. Oh, really? It's so interesting. I live in the Burbs. I maybe my perception of Astoria is like specific, I guess, um, pockets of mm-hmm. it. But that's what I would have never thought that it is yeah. predominantly Greek population. Yeah, it's been, I mean, at least in most parts of Astoria, like you do have like Greek families who've lived there for generations now. And you know, I moved from Astoria, which is a place that I thought was like super diverse because you can, you know, go down the street off of like Dittmar's Boulevard and hear people speaking Portuguese, speaking Spanish, all these Greek restaurants. And then I moved to central Brooklyn and it's super Caribbean and Afro-Caribbean. Yeah. And it's such a difference because I'm not seeing as many Latinos, which <laughs> I'm like, where are my Hispanics at? Like, um But it's really fascinating because what you're seeing now is sort of a shift with representation and like whose voices matter and who gets elected. You know, for instance, when we're just circling back to redistricting, Astoria was the place that helped elect Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. Interesting. Because there was a whole population shift of young people who are more progressive and because it was a non-presidential year, there was really, really low turnout. So the guy who had been there before... He was this older white guy. Yeah, an older white guy, Joe Crowley, who I think, had it been a higher turnout election, maybe he could have held on. But because of this new influx, this new population that wanted to see something different, propelled her into this, you know, Cinderella story. And now everyone knows who she is. Are we going to have any more Cinderella stories this election cycle? Possibly. I mean, that's the thing I think that's been so fascinating with covering this is that every every year, every election, there's one shocker. Huh. And sometimes it happens in New York. Sometimes it happens, you know, in Texas or wherever, where a person who has tremendous power gets unseated and you're like, holy crap, why? What? Yeah. And that's where it's like local media is important and this is a shout out to my organization where it's like (laughs) you have to know what's happening on the ground level and like what are people talking about what are the local issues and how do you get people to go vote because it's not Mm. easy I mean it's easier now because we have early voting Mm. and things like that but you have to be actively voting you Mm. can't just like do it on your phone right and you should be voting in each and every election it doesn't matter how small or how inconsequential in your mind it is Josefa, let's talk about when redistricting really worked for its constituents. Is there an example that you can share? Because we've already identified problems, right? Yeah. I mean, I think going back to that district that is majority 
Orthodox Jewish voters. Mm. That area, and it's like Borough Park, Williamsburg, Mm. you know, parts of Crown Heights. That helped for that community. You have someone who looks like you, who represents your interests, who knows the culture, who understands like the nuances in Albany, or in this case it was Albany, but in the state house, who can advocate, advocate for you. For you. So mm-hmm. it's really important to not discount that, especially with such a complicated group. Mm-hmm. So that helped them significantly. You know, it helped give them a voice in government. And I'm trying to think of where else that could possibly be. I feel like all I know is problems and not solutions. <laughs> so why can't we expand that model to other districts and other constituencies? What is holding us back? Yeah, I mean, the thing that was holding us back is that the reason that that district happened was because, you know, even though that state senator was a Democrat, he aligned himself with Republicans. So it was sort of a ah. deal that they made. And again, if you wanted to do that for other communities, you totally can. The question is whether or not Democrats is, are going to be sort of hypocritical yeah. in doing so or whether it's legal, too. Do you think that it also depends on who the constituents are? Because sometimes constituents may be Republican-leaning as well. Totally. So in terms of Orthodox Jewish community, do you think they are more Democrat-leaning or Republican-leaning? I don't really know. They sort of flip-flop back and forth. They're much more conservative, sometimes socially. Fiscally, not necessarily. But the fascinating thing about them is that they go and vote. Like, there are certain voting blocks That's why you saw all these mayoral candidates in New York City go and court the Orthodox Jewish vote and try to get significant rabbis to endorse them. It's because they're a community that makes sure that they go to the polls. And you can say the same thing for nursing homes. Every single time there's an election, you bet there's going to be a bus that's going to be helping people go from nursing homes or like retirement communities to the polls because... That's what I was going to ask you. Do older people vote? Absolutely. Old people vote... People who live on the Upper West Side, they will. They always vote. They're super civically engaged. What's called Brownstone, Brooklyn. So like right. higher in like Park Slope, Prospect Heights, those areas, you know, downtown Brooklyn. All of those people go and vote, too. Do you think immigrant communities in general are more reticent of, you know, the electoral process or they don't vote as much? They definitely don't vote as much. We did some data analysis to try to figure out, like, what are the areas in New York that have the lowest voter turnout? And, you know, one of them was Flushing in Queens. as a tremendously oh, wow. low voter turnout. Mm. You know, and for those unfamiliar with Flushing, I mean, talk about the there world in one area. <laughs> like, holy crap, it's every single country in one spot. Right. But I think it's most commonly associated with, like, Asian communities. There's amazing Chinese, Korean, Japanese food. You know, there's a, yeah. a robust, you know, Middle Eastern community and Southeast Asian community and a bunch of Latinos, too, right. from all over the place. So that's an area where people don't necessarily got to vote. But what is holding them back? I think it's seeing themselves reflected in a candidate or seeing the issues that they care about reflected in a candidate. But the complex thing about being a representative from Flushing is that... How do you represent... How do you represent everyone? How do you represent a community that has dozens of countries in that backyard? So Mm. how do you find someone that can bridge that gap for all of them? So how do you... Find (laughs) yourself a unicorn? I mean, that's a great (laughs) question. Find, you know, someone who is 
parents are really diverse or, you know, you find yourself someone who understands the immigrant experience. Right. At the same time, you know, there's certain things that you just have to transcend. look at the common theme or right. the common thread, right? Yeah. If it's not ethnicity or religious affiliation, as you said, it could be your immigrant identity yeah. or link to that. Right. Or just being exciting. Hmm. That's the thing. Like some of these people are so boring. Holy crap. <laughs> it's like watching paint dry. So like just having someone that you're excited to vote for, someone that you like believe in, yeah. as someone that doesn't feel like a chore to go line up at a school gymnasium to cast right. your vote for. I think that's important too. I mean, AOC did a wonderful job with that. People who are exciting yeah. and who excite others. Right. The other end of it, it's Donald Trump. Right. Like he, he excites exci- people he excited too. people. I mean, we have to give him credit for that. Right. We may not like him, but that's the truth. Yeah. But coming back to redistricting one more time, we know that recently a judge just tossed out mm-hmm. the whole New York redistricting map. And are they going to re design, restart the process where we are at and what do you hope to achieve because we do have primaries coming up yeah. and everything is just a mess right now. <laughs> a mess is right. So we're recording this on Tuesday. Hmm. On Wednesday, so tomorrow, a judge is supposed to rule on whether or not these lines can go forward or whether they're going to have you know an independent person come in and redraw them. Another independent person. <laughs> this time an actual, theoretically independent oh, person. Like but a professor. <laughs> yes, a professor. Right now, you know, our primary is in June. That means that people who are running for office needed to hand in all of their paperwork, everything earlier this month. They don't know what they're running for yet. Like, they don't know what their community looks like. They don't know if their house is within the boundaries of it. And what their campaign look like. Yeah. And who are their target audiences? So right now, we don't know if we're going to be able to have the election in June or whether it could be moved because the lines aren't still settled. We don't know, you know, what the... New York is probably going to, like, the state house will probably remain in Democratic control. The governor's race is sort of a toss-up right now. Mm. But the thing that people are really looking at is Congress. Because right. right now, the lines were shifted so much for Congress that it basically eliminated a lot of Republican-held seats. And could that tip the balance of power in favor of Republicans or Democrats in in the House is going to be something that everyone's monitoring. But I think just to come full circle with it, I would hope that there is a diverse group in office, whether it's Congress, the state house, you know, the city council that looks more like you and me, that represents our interests and that elevates the voices of the communities that they cover. That sounds ambitious, and I'm sure that will not be the case. Um, But it can still happen. But it could still happen. I mean, that's the thing sort of that AOC showed was that you could have a young millennial woman Mm. in office that understands the plight of, you know, young millennials Mm. growing up in New York City. But at the same time, what I would like to see is that people are more responsive to their community because people get power. And once you get power, the hardest thing is to stay in power. And so they forget that they have a community back home that they have to answer to. That's such an important point. And to the listeners, if you're listening this conversation and if you're enjoying it, which I'm pretty sure you are, send us your DMs. Tell us what you think about redistricting, how it's impacting you. Send us audios of where you see yourself being challenged, what you don't understand, because this episode will release in a couple of weeks. 
and I really am hoping that we can get some feedback from people once it's released. So we are looking forward to that. In the end, Josefa, this is something that I ask all my guests. If you were to define America in a word or a sentence, how would you do that? Oof. <laughs> I think that's it. Oof. That's what America is. I like Oof. that. I like that. Thank you so much, Josefa. This was so good. You're always welcome to come Thank back on Thank you for having me. I appreciate it. And have another conversation around topic that really either unites us or divides us. Thank you so much. Thank you. That's all for this week. You can find Josefa on Twitter at Josefa underscore Velasquez or on the city.nyc slash authors slash Josefa Velasquez. To learn more about this episode and stay in the loop on all things Immigrantly, be sure to follow us on Twitter at Immigrantly underscore pod and on Instagram at Immigrantly pod. And don't forget to subscribe to Patreon if you want us to bring these interesting, amazing, informative conversations every week. We need your help. Go subscribe to Patreon. You can go to ImmigrantlyPod.com and find a link to our Patreon. Also, if you have any comments about this or any other show, you can always reach out to us at info at immigrantlypod.com. It's always fun to get feedback from you, our listeners. Today's episode was written by Ashley Linuza with input from me, edited by Bronte Cook and produced by Kylie C. Roberts and me. Special thanks to our development producer, Eliza Kazmi. Until next time, take care.